0: The Better Understanding podcast is an invitation, an open-hearted, extended hand to increase our ability to work, lead, and live with one another more effectively. The premise and philosophy of the podcast is that it all begins with understanding ourselves and understanding others. In season one, and with some of the most successful experts and leaders of diversity and inclusion efforts in the world, we explored what it means to lead inclusively. In season two, we are bringing to life our Wall Street Journal best selling book, Arrive and Thrive, via powerful stories, earned wisdom, and lessons learned from some of the world's preeminent leaders and thrivers. Join me, Susan McInty Brady, as we explore how to arrive and thrive. I'd like to welcome Sally Helgeson to the Better Understanding podcast. Sally is an internationally best selling author, speaker, leadership coach. She's been named by the Thinkers 50 as one of the world's top 20 coaches and ranked number six among the world's thought leaders by global gurus. Sally's most recent book, How Women Rise, co-authored with legendary executive coach Marshall Goldsmith, examines the behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful women. It became the top seller in its field within a week of publication, and rights have been sold in 18 languages. Previous books include The Female Advantage, Women's Uh, Ways of Leadership hailed as a classic in its field and continuously in print since 1990. And The Female Vision, Women's Real Power at Work, which explores how women's strategic insights can strengthen their careers. The Web of Inclusion, A New Architecture for Building Great Organizations, was cited in the Wall Street Journal as one of the best books on leadership of all time and is credited with bringing the language of inclusion into business. To say that Sally's work has inspired my own would be an understatement. I called Sally the godmother of women's leadership, and then asked if it was okay that I said that. And she said, well, it's okay. Uh, She is the authority. She can be credited with making the case for what is in store for organizational leadership with more women rising into positions of power and why everyone needs to see this as a really great thing, women especially. My co-authors and I interviewed Sally for Arrive and Thrive, and she could easily speak to any one of the seven practices for navigating leadership We chose to feature her in the chapter about inspiring a bold vision. We are lucky to have Sally with us today. Sally, welcome to the Better Understanding podcast. And thank you so much for taking the time to be with us.
1: Thank you so much, Susan. It's really a pleasure to be here. And I do want to say I loved it when you called me the godmother. The godmother of women's leadership. I mean, it's better than the grandmother, but I love being the godmother right
0: now. The godmother is kind of even cooler, right? So I just have to dive right in. You know, as I was thinking about talking about you over the last few days, it occurred to me the span of your career on in this specialty area is so rich. How has your thinking changed since your seminal work, The Female Advantage?
1: Yeah, The Female Advantage was published in 1990. And I'm proud to say it was the first book that looked at what women had to contribute as leaders rather than how they needed to change and adapt. And I think that's why it had the kind of influence that was able to kick off this now almost 35 year career in women's leadership and inclusive leadership. And what the, I'd say the three things that I have noticed that have changed the most in terms of women's leadership are, first of all, women have a lot more confidence than they did before and more are more likely to think that they have a shot at being leaders and to want to prepare themselves to be that. Secondly, women have, I would say, greater solidarity with one another, much greater solidarity with one another than they did Certainly when I started my work, there was this sort of queen bee syndrome where the woman who was in the most senior position didn't share. I experienced this firsthand because I was often in the position with clients, they were asking me to get some support from senior women for a women's initiative that was usually in its beginning phase. And it was hard to get that support from senior women. You know, you'd hear things like, I don't want to be seen as a woman. I want to be seen as a leader. So that, that has pretty much melted away. And there's much greater solidarity, much more interest in seeing among senior women in bringing other women along. And the third uh, thing that is, a, I think, a manifestation of both the confidence and solidarity is that women are much more comfortable and active in engaging men as allies and having them, learning from them, eliciting their support for what they are trying to achieve and contribute. So those things have been big changes in terms of women. And I do think also, just the the last thing, that it's underappreciated how much women have changed the ways in which we perceive excellence in leadership. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's um it's been interesting. You know, we hear, I mean, I do work with the military services. They talk about empathy, the whole idea of servant leadership, the whole notion of the leader as a coach, the emphasis for leaders on listening, on skilled listening, on active listening, the need for leaders to get more. Comfortable communicating across a chain of command, not just hierarchically sending orders down, but engaging people at different levels. The fact that both men and women are much more comfortable now talking about their personal or domestic lives and bringing that with them, that they see that as part of who they are. And so all of those things were all those characteristics of excellent leadership. And I'm not saying all leaders fall into this. We've seen some pretty bad ones, especially recently. But excellence in leadership is much more reflective of the kind of gifts and contributions that women brought to organizations and female skills that had been pretty much suppressed in the industrial workplace. So watching that evolution Has been really uh, thrilling to me. How do you differentiate between female skills and
0: feminine traits, and do you find the language tricky for those who identify as men? Man,
1: Um, I, I I try not to find the language tricky. I feel that if you come to a conversation with a an inclusive grounding. That is the assumption, you're making an assumption of goodwill among other people. Then if you come to the conversation that way, you don't have to police your language so tightly. Uh, I think we do a lot of that in organizations, certainly do a lot of it in universities and it can inhibit people from building strong relationships. I don't know how to talk to a man at that level. You know, should I say this to a woman? We we get into a lot of that. Obviously, there are things that are off limits. But I think that the important thing is coming with an attitude of openness and goodwill. And what can I learn from you? And here's what I've been thinking. How does this resonate with your experience rather than Well, the five traits of women leaders are X, Y, and Z. You know, this is what I, in my experience, women have brought this into the workplace. Does this resonate with what you've seen? In that way, you don't have to get so involved in the weeds of, you know, what language is the language we're using this month.
0: Okay. So I'm going to challenge you here just because I think that we've made it harder Than necessary for men in power to come into the conversation safely. In fact, I just heard recently that men are now much less likely to go towards a women's leadership effort, formal or informal, since hashtag Me Too. And I was so disturbed by that, but I also understood. like, So what resonated was risk. And when there is a prevalence of risk, goodwill is sabotaged. Like my gesture of coming towards you to support you might be seen as I'm hitting on you or I'm being inappropriate. And so there's real fear. I'd love your perspective. I will tell you, I had the opportunity to meet Gloria Steinem and do a talking circle at her home this summer. And my question for her was, the most frequent question I get from groups of women is, what do we do about the men? And it always surprises me because I think, well, gosh, the men, if the men would sit around and talk about what are we going to do about including these women, that would be a good thing. And she said, you know, she said, we got to invite them in and I totally agree with that. And then I think it's how, right? It's how, because we, there are appropriate boundaries and repercussions if they're crossed, right? That's certainly changed in your career, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so for men who might be listening to our podcast, who the back of their mind, they're saying, oh, Sally, goodwill, come Uh, on, you know?
1: I I agree with you that the, and I don't see this so much anymore, but in the most inflamed period at the beginning of hashtag me too, I heard, I certainly read in the press and I did hear uh, in organizations, men being reluctant to say, sit in on a woman's, initiative, a women's meeting, offering coaching, offering mentoring. I did hear that. In my observation, when I was hearing it, I would ask more questions from the men. And often I found that they actually weren't that interested anyway, and they were grabbing this as a kind of an excuse. In, again, I can only speak from my experience. I'm not a data researcher, but What I see is that more and more and more men are part of the women's programs that I do. They seem to be more comfortable participating, sitting in, listening, asking questions. And this works well if they demonstrate a desire to learn. And I think that's what really works. Let me give you an example. You know, I've written a new book. It's coming out February 28th, Rising Together. And it's very much about this subject, how we can bridge divides and create a more inclusive workplace. So I'm dealing really specifically both with some of the triggers that can get in the way of building these kinds of relationships across divides, gender, but also racial, ethnic, age, sexual orientation. So those triggers, and then also what are some inclusive behaviors that enable us specifically to to demonstrate goodwill. And this book was kicked off by a circumstance very much like the one you're describing. I was doing a program at the Construction Super Conference in Las Vegas. Huge event. Took out both Wynn hotels there. If you're familiar with them. It was enormous. And I was doing a breakout on women's leadership. So I go in to Vegas, I am assuming that my breakout is going to be 100, 150 women who are struggling in the construction sector. I get to the room. There are about 400 people. And I'd say 65% of them were men. And I was so floored. Wow. Yes. All these men. So of course, what I was going to deliver was kind of obsolete because it was an exhortation to women. So I had to tap dance a little. So I started and I said, first of all, I, I have often, you know, more and more men are in programs, women's leadership programs I do, but I've never had anything like this percentage. I'd like to hear from a couple of you, why you team, what inspired you to come and what would be helpful to you. And this one guy stood up, I remember a construction site manager type, and he said, you know, look, please don't waste our time telling us why it is important that we get better at engaging and retaining and developing the talents of women we understand it excuse me it is absolutely necessary for the survival of our businesses please don't tell us why what we need to understand is how do we do that how do we how do we demonstrate that goodwill How do we meet them where they are? We don't have a clue. And that's when I decided on the spot that I was going to write this book because I wanted to answer that question. Mm. So what I see is being able to proactively address certain triggers. When you talk about the trigger of attraction, the trigger of humor, when is humor appropriate? What kind of humor is appropriate? Uh, Our standards of humor have changed dramatically over the years, asking what what works, trying something over again. I've got an example in the book that I sat in um, with a male leader who came into a very mixed group that he was leading, and he started off with a kind of a joke comment about a female employee who had left the company abruptly and was not present, and he It landed, as they used to say, like a lead balloon. Uh, There was kind of no response. And he realized it. And I've seen that kind of situation. He was the the big cheese. I've seen that kind of situation where you go, well, you guys don't have a sense of humor. What he did was he said, I'm sorry, I'm going to try this again. Walked out of the room, recalibrated, walked back into the room and said, good morning. It's so good to see you all. Let's get the elephant out of the room right now and acknowledge that Mary has left us. Uh, there, I know that some of you may be feeling some active feelings about Mary about Mary leaving us. Uh, there might be anger, there might be resentment. You might feel that she was treated unfairly. Let's take the first ten minutes here and talk about that, and then we can move on. It was so beautiful. It worked so well. It was he was able to recalibrate. He didn't dig in. He wasn't accusatory, which can happen. And it was a really beautiful moment. So I think that, that one of the things with getting overly sensitized to triggers is that in that environment, we make it hard for something like that to happen. It's like, that guy is a sexist pig. You know, he says one thing. He actually acts this way. Did you hear what he said? That was outrageous. Someone needs to report him, et cetera. When we do that, we cut off the the opportunity for people to recalibrate what their behavior is. And that's why I talk about demonstrating goodwill, because we allow a space where someone can learn. Now, is everyone going to learn? No, of course not. Have I been in a situation where someone did that kind of thing? And they just double down on it and, you know, going on and on. Well, you don't think that's funny? How about this? You know, trying to be the entertainer. So I think the key word is curiosity and imagination, really. That's how we build empathy. We build empathy by being curious. I wonder why that person said "Yeah," that, Rather than, I can't believe that person said that. And then we, we in our imagination, we think about the kind of circumstances that would have led to that. And that's a better way to come at this whole thing.
0: You know, it's funny that you say curiosity. I've written a lot about curiosity and I realize one of the great contributions in our time over the past five years has been the rise of Adam Grant's work in the the non-loaded topic of just rethinking your thinking. And it's almost a prerequisite to navigating any difficult conversation. So I'm seeing like the collision also of just basic human conflict avoidance. You know, when you told your story, it's like, I'm uncomfortable. That's what I receive when I talk to men. And the thing that I just remind everybody, which I think you do too, as we venture in, is we are in a learning conversation. We are learning together. There's no reason we know how we should know how to have these kind of conversations. And it begins and ends with owning our impact and owning our intention. So we all go in with good intention and we are going to land not as we want it some of the time. You can plan on it, but then you can own it. So these it's a generous, what I'm hearing from you, Sally, is there's a generosity to
1: the language that is really absent blame and Having seen the
0: work of women's advancement and rise over the last fifty years, and read a lot about it, I'm more and more inclined to think, blame and shame really are detrimental to equity for any anyone, any identity. Can you speak a little bit about what you've noticed around blame, and then, am I right to think that's the connection to goodwill? Right, like the opposite of. Is Because if we look at the trope or the tripwire, really, what you're saying is, I might be confirmation bias triggered the minute I see something happen and I'm off to the races, but he's just not a good guy. When in fact, he didn't even know he made that look. You know what I mean? So can you speak a little bit more about this? Because I think this is where it's at,
1: right? I agree. And the language of microaggressions, for example, is a language of blame and it's a language of shame. And it's a language that, you know, and it's, I've taught, I mean, younger people come into the workplace very, very astute about recognizing and defining microaggressions. And it is not a presumption of goodwill. It is a presumption that we're going to look at ever smaller actions, words, and put a frame around them. And reject them or chastise them. And I just don't think it's a help a helpful development. My concern has always been that women are able to help create an environment in which they are comfortable articulating and acting on their greatest strengths. And they are likely to recognize what those strengths are. And they are likely to build a career based on what their strengths and interests are that's going to be satisfying and rewarding for them and that will enable them to reach their full potential. Now, for this to happen, two things are necessary. Women need to develop a real comfort with what their skills are and the ability to interact with the widest possible Range of people, because guess what this is true in the global economy. It's only getting more and more and more diverse, and you can slice and dice things ever finer, do work in Silicon Valley companies where literally seventy percent of the workforce is from the subcontinent, so India, and so a lot of the the caste system issues in India have become live there. So this is the world we're part of. And this is not just true. This is true in any organization that touches on the global economy. So we have to get better at this. And the search for how people might be stepping on someone's toes somewhere, and someone might take offense at this, that, or the other, it's just not a helpful conversation to have. And I believe that it distracts women's focus from what's positive. And that is, I have this to contribute. I need to learn to articulate this in the strongest and clearest way. I need to get known for what I have to contribute and cultivate the visibility and the broad range of relationships that will enable me to cultivate that visibility. And that's where I need to put my attention. and then and men can come into that conversation with the idea this is this is good there are interesting ways that I think I could be of service in helping this woman develop i wonder if she could be of service in helping me on x so this is how i think that, that where i see this working well in organizations this is how it is we're kind of I don't want to say loosen our expectations, but we're comfortable enough in our own skin that we are not constantly on the lookout for differences, for infractions, for microaggressions, for hidden biases, et cetera, and can just go into a situation saying, as you say, you know, what can I learn from this? How can I get more skilled at doing this? Oh, here's a new situation. This person's got a lot of concerns. Um, uh, how can I meet those? And how can we work effectively together? So I think it's time to inject a strong note of not just a positivity here, but recognition that this is a fantastic opportunity.
0: love the point of view you have. There is a sea change in the re-narrative that is coming from a place of honoring and strength as opposed to looking for what's wrong. I'm very, very appreciative of. And people are still confused and scared, right? What, Sally, what's surprising to you? Has there been anything like, oh my gosh, I really thought this was going to happen, but this happened instead. Any trends you're seeing that our listeners can hear from you? Just your perspective of the several decade run that you've had working to bridge this gender divide.
1: Uh, Yes, I would say that it has been surprising to me how enthusiastic many, certainly not all, men are in terms of supporting women. It has been fascinating to me to over, you know, I've been at this 35 years, and men apply a lot of this very directly to their daughters. I want to create, this is something I hear all the time, I want to create, help create a team a workplace, a division here that would be the kind of place that I would want my daughter to work. And I believe that that's a strong motivation. And I think that's played a fantastic role. And that's been somewhat uh, surprising to me, the impact that has had. Um, I hear it also, you know, men listen to the kinds of situations that their wives have had to contend with, and they take that seriously. So, That's been a big surprise to me. One of the other surprises has been the extent to which women will still struggle with feeling the right to be visible, the right to seek positional power. I remember having a conversation a number of years ago with a psychiatrist on the Upper East Side who worked with a lot of women who were you know, I mean, she charged an arm and a leg and a lot of her clients were very senior women in law firms or investment banking. And she talked about how many of them came in almost on the first day and said, I want you to know that I'm not really ambitious. And she found it curious because any of us who've ever worked in a an investment bank on Wall Street or a New York uh, top 10 law firm knows you've got to be ambitious. <laughs> to get anywhere. And these women were partners. So they were uncomfortable claiming their own ambition. And I think that has surprised me. The other thing that has surprised and disappointed me, I have to say, is how when female politicians are out there who are not horrible people, and some of them are obviously very clearly, how women are often remain quite critical of them. They're their biggest supporters, but you hear a lot of criticism. We're all human beings. All of us are human beings. We're all frail. We're all fragile. We're all just trying to get along. Yeah. We're all just trying to build a place for ourselves and find a way to represent our talents. And I do think women can still, we, we're done with the queen bee thing. That's a legacy of the past generally, but we're st- we still can be pretty hypercritical of other women who are in high visibility positions. I don't think it serves them. I don't think it serves us. I don't think it serves men.
0: I think, you know, it goes back to what you said about solidarity. I agree. I don't see the queen bee phenomenon nearly as much. What I do see is surprise that there's one of the greatest byproducts of doing work with women-only groups for women's leadership efforts is like mind-blowing connections these women make with each other and think, oh my heavens, I have a whole new network, right? So, and then the solidarity began. I can actually sponsor and support you and talk positively behind your back, even though you're in a different department, right? So we haven't discovered our full power to just support each other. That's not an against anyone. It's a for each other kind of stance, which is, I think, really exciting. I want to switch gears a little bit and just bring us into the context of our time. I've been referring to now as peri-pandemic because, boy, it's not post. (laughs) We're in it. I don't know if this is our new normal. The future is hybrid. We're starting to see stress, mental health. None of this is seemingly going away. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about trends you're seeing emerge in our semi-post-pandemic, peri-pandemic working reality and how leaders at all levels can thoughtfully engage in this context, particularly to ensure that we don't lose momentum with the advancement of women in leadership?
1: I don't necessarily see us losing momentum. There certainly have been particular challenges for women in, in the early pandemic era when children were home from school and we're not going back there. Don't see more for than a couple of weeks at a time right? as new viruses emerge. And I do think your language of is is good language. Because we we don't really know how this is evolving. New, I I was diagnosed uh, a couple of weeks ago with the RSV virus that's uh, around, and my doctor described it as COVID adjacent. So I said, "What does that mean?" I don't know. <laughs> just, just they they mean it's somehow associated with COVID, but it's not COVID, and it's you know you don't have COVID, but you have something that's a little COVID like. So we're in that. Phase, and I think peri-pandemic is a good one. Uh, my feeling from the start was that this move to more hybrid work would be ultimately very good for women, would serve women well once we got the issue of kids being back to school.
0: Yeah, was yeah.
1: I have worked with so many companies and I remember right before the pandemic, I was doing, a, I was slated to do an in person, which of course was canceled with a very large energy company that's based in the South. And when I was talking to the head of HR, she said, you know, we have a terrible hiring problem because we're so strict about our policies about being in the office. I was working with a wonderful insurance company in New England. And they were saying, you know, our issue is that we get a lot of snow and we can't give enough snow days to our people to cover all the times when the kids are staying home at school. And we're getting women who don't want to work here because they're looking at our policies there. So there was an attrition that was happening already because of some of these very strict rules about being in the office that
0: no fixable.
1: Yeah, that technologically were pretty obsolete. And I remember reading early in the pandemic an interview with the head of Tata, uh, which is an India and UK-based multi-manufacturer. And he was saying that their plan before the pandemic had been looking at a future, he said we were considering 20 years, when 70% of the workforce would be virtual as the technology evolved to support that. And he was saying this just accelerated a trend that was already underway and already mm-hmm. happening. And I think that, you know, in the same way, early in our conversation, I said that I felt that women were a major and often underacknowledged factor in how we have come to redefine excellence as being a listener, as being a coach, as being empathic, non-hierarchical, inclusive, inclusive, let's call it what it is. Uh, I think women have redefined that, but I think women have also played a role in pushing toward a hybrid workplace. The pandemic and its associated effects have accelerated that. They did it in a way that was quite challenging to deal with the first 18 months or so. But I think that ultimately that will be a good thing for women. And what I really see in a sort of big picture is the industrial era, which we are now definitely out of, was about the centralization of work away from the home. Work used to be done pretty much in the home, whether it was farming or, you know, small crafts, et cetera. And the Industrial Revolution centralized that because the means of production, the primary means of production that people used to do their work were heavy and expensive and needed to be in one place. Ever since the evolution of the desktop computer and all its associated uh, technologies, that has not been true. The primary means of production by which people contribute and do their work is increasingly cheap and portable. So it no longer makes sense to have that big separation between work and home. And it was that separation between work and home that landed us with a situation where you had men at work and women at home. So now the whole thing is kind of more into it's not kind of is more integrated. It's going more toward a pre-industrial model. And I believe that is a positive evolution for women. And it's a positive evolution, ultimately, for families as well. Well,
0: that brings up the notion of thriving, which is something, of course, I've been thinking a lot about. I just want to go personal here, Sally. What's come clear to you about thriving over the course of your career and how did this clarity come about? Because I think the notion that we are returning to a pre-industrial era both creates amazing opportunity for how I define myself as a partner, mother, dog, mom, friend, daughter, sister, leader, employee, employer. And it also invites some of those age old issues of doing too much and perfectionism and wanting to make sure it all works. And I think that we're, if there's ever a moment in time, I want to encourage women to not to leave themselves behind in anything that they're doing. We don't get extra points for being needless and wantless. Um, so let's talk about thriving. What do you see for yourself and also maybe the ingredients for thriving? And then what would you counsel our listeners to sort of pay attention to as they think about thriving
1: themselves? From my perspective, thriving depends on the ability to manage our energy in a way that gives us stan- stamina and keeps us resilient. And that management of energy requires, you know, obviously doing what we do to maintain our physical health. But beyond that, I would say that maintaining that energy is depends also heavily on the extent to which we are connected with other human beings and the extent to which we are connected with an idea of a power in the universe greater than ourselves, however we choose to define and understand that. Now, the connection with other human beings is really being challenged in this era. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I have, um, you know, I discovered that a colleague lives within 50 miles of me and we're going to meet for lunch. And we figure out a place that's halfway between, whatever. Maybe he lives within 100 miles. Uh, we figure out a place. We can, I can get there in an hour. I can get there in an hour. We're set to go, oh, this happened, this happened. Let's do it on Zoom. So it is not the same. It is absolutely not the same. Our memory of it is not the same. The texture of it is not the same. The conversations, the insights, the sort of serendipity is not the same. And these technologies make it pretty easy to default. The other thing, uh, and I think this particularly applies to the United States, is we have developed an infrastructure of living that makes it hard to connect. Uh, My husband, sister, and I were in Spain for a month in November. And we were in small towns that were, or small cities, I should say, that were up in the mountains and fairly remote. And Over and over, what struck me is you'd go out six o'clock in the evening. The streets were full. There were young people. There were working mothers. There were babies. There were grandparents. There were old. There was every age. People were just out. They were having coffee. They were taking a walk. They were meeting friends. They were having a drink. But they were out. I live in a small, well, it's more of a small town in the Hudson Valley. And if you go into town at night, nobody's there it's empty um you know some people go into the village to have lunch but we don't we have an infrastructure that makes it hard for people to connect so my concerns uh with thriving have to do with at this point we don't have the default that i saw in spain of being able to connect on a human level with a wide range of other people just by walking out our door. Sure. We have to make a larger effort for that. And we also, I think, need to think about as we're planning our life, You know, how am I going to develop the support that will give me resilience and enable me to connect fairly easily without a lot of logistics and planning with other human beings in person on a daily basis. So I think those to me are the big issues around thriving. And uh, it's certainly not just where I live. I mean, I see it in California. I see it in Texas. I see it not in DC. I certainly see it in New York now where all storefronts seem to be closed. But uh, San Francisco looks like a ghost town. But, you know, we are more and more living in isolated silos, and I don't think that is going to support us in our efforts to create the energy we need to thrive.
0: Right. I am so glad you brought up the concept of connection, because I think where it used to be available to us more, more organically, it's not. And I think for certain the pandemic sort of pushed a pause on that for us in a meaningful way. Having said that, I am guilty of doing, I really was looking forward to having dinner with an old friend and it was pouring down the rain and I know she has a small child and I was really fatigued and I said, can we just have a virtual sip on Zoom and connect? And she was like, sure. It felt like a self-loving thing to do. And I know the sacrifice right, of not being in that kind of connecting place. Um, so let's talk about self-care as we wrap up. I am encouraging all of the guests on the Better Understanding podcast to think about, I wanna normalize and democratize the idea of self-care because it buoys thriving. It enables us to show up as our best self as we walk through the world and lead others. And I think hearing how different people practice self-care, whatever that means, could be related to one of the practices in our book or maybe some of your practices in your books or a general well being practice. What's your favorite way of self-care and, and any advice you have for our listening audience about their own self-care?
1: Well, for me, in addition to trying to take a walk every day, despite the weather or despite you know, what I'm dealing with, I've had a couple of health challenges in the last year uh, and doing my Pilates. My essential basis of self-care involves touching base every morning with my peer coach I'm a peer coach that I've been working with for um, years. We decide each year and each each season what we're going to focus on for one another, uh, with one another in that period. For me, it could be finding energy. Um, Mine has felt depleted lately. Uh, For her, it could be, you know, having a slightly more disciplined work schedule uh, spending less time cleaning up our desktop. It can be big things. It can be small things. It can be being nicer to your husband. It can be, you know, tolerating your next door neighbors, driving you nuts, whatever that is. Um, we are very intentional in our coaching. We ask, we make sure we ask about how the other person's doing and, you know, anything that's come up in terms of what that challenge is. So that is, that is, absolutely essential to my functioning. And that is, I would say, in addition to just, you know, trying to sleep, eat, not have chocolate ice cream while, you know, binging on the crown. Yeah. Uh, the um, that for me, that is a foundational uh, practice of self-care.
0: You know what I love about you saying as you're the first person to talk about peer coach um, and even a daily peer coach, I think In this shrinking sort of less connection, more, you have to take more, it takes more to connect, right? World. I think we're relying on our partners and our spouses more and more, or the default of who we live with has to meet all of these needs. And I actually think it's very loving and relationally healthy to spread the love of support around, among friendships and peer coaches and mentors and sponsors. Uh, Sally, we could talk all day. There is no doubt in my mind. I'm going to probably end the podcast and think, oh, I wish I asked her this, but I'm going to leave that to you. What are your final thoughts or favorite piece of advice that you would want? Recognizing that the Better Understanding podcast is very much an extended hand to showing up in an understanding frame of mind and particularly around driving leadership that is seeking equity, particularly for women. Final thoughts for any of our listeners.
1: I think my final thought would be two things. Number one, I'm such a big advocate of peer coaching. It's off the charts. And what you say is right about putting too much pressure sometimes on our relationship. My husband doesn't necessarily, at the end of the day, want to get into long discussion about you know every uh, interior thing that's going on with me. It's not what he had in mind. So taking the pressure off that with a peer coach is very good, and it really helps you yet more intentional to define what you're working on. So uh, I think that's a very, very good thing. The other thing is, what, I've, what one of the great things that I've witnessed over the last 30 years is this sort of evolution of internal networks in companies or, or women's networks in industries or sectors. You know, they have gone from being, you know, often what they were in the 90s, sort of a brown bag lunch where everybody griped to being very proactive and really extraordinary resources uh, for, for for the people who are in them, uh, for the women who are in them and for the men who get interested and you know come to some of the meetings and offer to mentor some of the women. So I would say that if there is a women's network in your organization or in your sector, uh, that you uh, join it, get involved. Uh, not just showing up at meetings, but taking a little responsibility, saying, hey, I can handle that. I'll run that meeting. It's one of the best things you can do for yourself just in terms of building connection, but also coming to appreciate different leadership styles, expanding your circle of curiosity, getting connected. We cannot do any of this alone. You know, we are pioneering something that is brand new out there in the workplace and in our organization. And we need oh. help and we need support. So being as proactive as we can in finding the sources of that support where we can.
0: Love so, it. Okay, everybody, you heard it. So find a peer coach and look for sources of support. Sally, where can our listeners b- learn more about what you do and contact you if they wish to?
1: Certainly, uh, uh, my website, uh, sallyhelgeson.com. We've got a big contact bu- button right there. It's going to be up. We're, uh, the new website when the book comes out, but it's going to be up continually. And I get lots of inquiries uh, through that contact button. I'm on LinkedIn, and for now, I'm staying on Twitter. <laughs> we'll see how okay. that Okay.
0: All right. Thank you so much for being with us. It's such a pleasure talking with you. I love every opportunity we have to connect, and I learn from you every time. So thank you. It's
1: been such a pleasure.